what do we think about this time of year? And what do I mean by that? After Christmas and thinking about January coming up, the new year, uh, we have our Julian calendar and we know that January 1st is coming. So I'm going to do a little bit of Gary Stravel tonight. I'm going to ask you, you, okay, you, can, you can call out. But what do we think about after Christmas and just before January? What are some of the things that the secular world thinks about? That's it. Only one person? Were you guys sleeping tonight? New Year's resolutions. And what are, what are some of the most common ones? Before you say that, I'm going to just talk about what my problems are. Well, just one of them. <laughs> I'm not going to be too transparent, but I've got to stop stuffing my face with Christmas cookies. I've, <laughs> I've been doing that for the last three weeks, and I feel horrible. I mean, it's, the funny thing is a few nights ago, my wife and I were getting ready to go to bed. Josiah was in bed, and we're laying in bed and, and getting ready to pray. And I see her closet door is, is open like a foot. It's, it's just enough that it, it just started to come open. And something caught my eye. I'm looking in the closet as I'm laying down, and I see on the top shelf a tray with a big pile of tinfoil over it. And it just didn't look right. And I said, Heather, are those Christmas cookies? She said, yeah. I said, why are they in the closet? She goes, I had to hide them from you. <laughs> she makes Christmas cookies, and, you know, we have guests, and, you know, she... She wants everybody to have their cookies, but I, I have a problem. I just keep putting them in my mouth. It's like I'm addicted to them or something. So that's my problem. But what are some of the other uh, that you could think of? What are the more popular New Year's resolutions? Go ahead. Exactly. <laughs> Growing hair. Okay. Well, losing weight is, is a common one. Uh, every January, I know I have friends who work in the... Uh, the training field and the you know the gym field and they say that should, you know every Saturday, every Saturday every January there's a spike in membership everybody wants to work out off those pounds from from the holidays quit smoking that's that's another common one that people talk about um, you know going back to the gym it's funny when you go into the gym especially in January uh, you see all these people running in place on the treadmills and they're all in a line and they're not going anywhere it it, it kind of reminds me of hamster wheels for humans but. <laughs> That's what happens. So, but you know, I think about myself. Uh, I think about what Paul said. He, Paul asked for boldness. He said, "Pray for me to be more, more bold." Imagine that. The writer of the, of the uh, half the New Testament was praying for boldness, and I think some of us need that too. We need to pray for more boldness. Jesus could come back this year for His people, and um, you know, what, what if we had so many opportunities to share our faith and we didn't do it? So we, we ought to pray for boldness. I think of some of my goals as a pastor. And I'm just kind of being a little casual tonight. But um, I think about uh, what do I want to do? What do I want to see for the body? I want to see the body be built up, as Ephesians 4 speaks about. You know, God gives gifts to men, to women, to the church, to build up the body of Christ. So I'm not looking for numbers or money or anything. Uh, we're not having an offering tonight, so I don't want your money. But um, what I am looking for is for the body to be built up in Jesus Christ. Because there's actually a term that says healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. And the more you are built up, the more you're going to be able to effectively share your faith with other people, and you're going to be able to contend for the faith, as Jude speaks about. Another thing I think about is, you know, who knows? We may even outgrow the facility that we're in as the body grows, and we may look for a building. So there's some of the things I think about, and even changing some of my own ways as a pastor, looking at my own heart and seeing where I'm found wanting and where I could change my heart. So ironically, as we come to the... Uh, to the third chapter of Luke's gospel, we see John the Baptist's ministry. And he forced people to self-evaluate themselves. He forced people to look within their hearts and see how they could make changes uh, to prepare for the Messiah's ministry. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to jump in to Luke chapter 3. We're going to start with verses 1 and 2. It says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas being high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Well, let's try to digest a little bit of this historical information, because Luke is very good like that. He's a good historian. He wants to nail down the time periods. He wants to, everybody to know exactly when these things are happening. Okay, Tiberius Caesar from history, we know that he reigned A.D., 14 through A.D. 37, uh, he, he basically took over after the death of Augustus Caesar. He came to power as the next emperor. 
Nothing really exciting about this guy, not quite as charismatic as Augustus, but he's known for being a good administrator and subduing the revolt of the Germanic tribes in Europe. A uh, little history lesson here. Pontius Pilate reigned Judea from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. He was uh, a military leader, which they made a governor. His real name, uh, his title was Praefectus Iudeae. Sounds like some kind of infection. But uh, that was, he was like the, uh, the, the leader of the equestrian troops, and they put him in power in Judea to uh, govern uh, that, that area. He was known for his harshness with, uh, with the Jewish people, his disdain for their customs, and his heavy hand led to a lot of uprisings. And his many uprisings, because of his heavy hand, led to him being recalled to Rome, and they put him on notice. They, were, they weren't happy with the way he was running things. Uh, so he kind of was a little gun-shy after that, and that set the stage for Pontius Pilate to allow the crucifixion of Jesus, although he didn't want to, because he didn't want to see another uprising, because he was already put on notice. So it's cool because all this stuff that I get is not from biblical sources. It's actually uh, historian, historical sources. But it all lines up with scripture, as we're going to see later on. Another thing about this Pontius Pilate was he replaced one of Herod the Great's sons, Herod Archelaus. Herod Archelaus was removed because he was an incompetent ruler. And what happened was, if you follow the Jewish people, their domination by uh, certain dynasties, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, every time they were conquered, uh, they, were, they were vassal states of these dynasties, and they had to pay tribute to these dynasties. But the dynasties, for the most part, let them run day-to-day -day operations of their own people. They could do capital punishment. They could govern their own people. They were left uh, alone. And that was considered the scepter-ship of the Jewish people. Now... When Pontius Pilate came in, they were kind of fed up with the Jewish people, and they took away that right of capital punishment and to govern their own people. And you see that later on when they have to have Pilate's permission to crucify Jesus, because no more could they govern themselves, the Jewish people. There's a scripture that goes along with that, and that's Genesis 49.10. I want to read that because it's very important. It's a time-sensitive scripture. It says this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shalom comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, we spoke about what the scepter-ship was, that ability to run their own people, that jus uh, glagi in the, in the uh, Latin. But the Shiloh was another picture of the Messiah. So what he's saying is at this particular time, remember uh, Genesis 49.10 had to be written oh, a few thousand years prior to Jesus even coming to the earth. That uh, God, you know, through the prophecy that it was told that once the scepter was removed, that the Messiah would come on the scene. So we know that that's actually a time-sensitive prophecy. So uh, that's, that's very interesting because there's a few time-sensitive prophecies. If somebody was to rise up today and say, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah, we'd have to reject that for a lot of reasons. But he could not prove that he came in that time period because that window of opportunity came and went. And there's a lot of that in the scripture as we go forth with that a little technical stuff there. Uh, Herod speaks about Herod Antipas. He, he reigned Galilee from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. He was the son of Herod the Great, one of the sons. Now, the Herods was a family name, like the Caesars. The Caesars started out as a family name. The Herods started out as a family name. And these people were Idumean, which, if you go back, the Idumeans were Edomites. If you go back from the Edomites, they were from Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? And the Idumeans under the Hasmonean dynasty um, prior to the Roman invasion were converted to Judaism forcibly, sort of. And they kind of retained that. So the Herods claimed to be Jews, although they weren't really Jews, and they were put into position to run the Jewish people. But their allegiance was really to Rome. So actually, you're starting to see as we go forward, the, the Herods are the false messiahs in a sense. And you see the friction between Jesus' empire or Jesus' uh, spiritual empire and the Herod's uh, temporal empire. It's the age-old struggle between Jacob and Esau. Remember in the womb? And then Herod Philip. Nothing much notable about him, except for you'll see that uh, Herod Antipas takes his wife and has a relationship with her. But he reigns from 4 B.C. to 33 A.D. And a tetrarch just meant, if you divide the words tetra and arc, is basically a ruler of the fourth. So these powerful men that were just listed, that Luke lists, it actually, it took the land of Israel, and they divided up pretty much in quadrants, and each man got a fourth. So that's what a tetrarch is. Um, so, and then Annas and Caiaphas, according to Jewish law, there could only be one high priest. 
Annas was the original high priest, but he was deposed by the Romans because they couldn't control him. Annas was a hardliner. So they put his uh, son-in-law, Caiaphas, in his position, and he reigned from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. But history tells us that he was just basically a puppet for his father-in-law. And we're going to see, the, we're going to see that happening. Um, and then just elaboration on these historical figures. Again, it comes from extra-biblical sources. And initially, people thought that Pontius Pilate was a fictitious character. And some of the cities in the Bible years ago, oh, they're fictional cities. But as, we, as more archaeological uh, digs are done in the Middle East, they find that all these digs substantiate the Bible. And there's actually a periodical out called Biblical Archaeology. Go figure. And basically, a good archaeologist will use the Bible as his guide. But ironically, these men, these powerful men, had control in that area over several million people. And you would think that the Roman Empire would have lasted forever. But where is the Roman Empire right now? Where, where are these men? They're gone, right? So, but look at the effect that, again, these men had a collective dynasty of maybe 100 years, if you, if you add up all their years of reign. And Jesus was on the earth for a little bit more than three years. And look at the effect that he's had on the world. Big difference, right? And we also see that the word of God came to John, um, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. John the Baptist gets the word of God in the wilderness. So the political, the religious, uh, the important people of the world, the word of God doesn't come to them. But the word of God does go into the wilderness. It was absent in the political and religious world, but it was present in the wilderness. So God didn't speak to dignitaries. He spoke, he spoke to humble people whose hearts was right. And that's one thing that we should always remember. We tend to get caught up in looking at people and the fanfare and even uh, in, in evangelical circles. You know, a lot of men are making themselves up to be something special. As a matter of fact, my mom went to see one of these evangelicals in Philadelphia not too long ago, and he had pyrotechnics, you know, a little bit of fireworks and neat stuff, and he enters the stage, you know, look at me. So it, that's not what it's about. No, I'm serious. <laughs> I'm making this stuff up. But verse 3, it says, And he went, John the Baptist, he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Baptism, the word baptism, is actually a transliteration from the Greek word baptisma. Some, some English words that we have that we've adopted are called transliterations. They're literally taken from the Greek and made to be an English word. But bap, baptisma means a full immersion in a liquid, and that's important. We're going to see later what it means to literally be baptized. But repentance literally means to change the mind, to have second thoughts or to regret. And why does repentance have to come before true faith in Christ? Well, because we're spiritually dead prior to receiving Christ. We're spiritually dead prior to being taught by the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, everything that we learned about spirituality has to change. We have to repent. We have to change our minds. Even our views of sin are skewed. Before we're Christians, a lot of us looked forward to sinning. You know, that was something that people did. But then when you become a Christian, you say, wait a minute, that's wrong. Because you're starting to be taught by the Holy Spirit. But you have to repent. You have to change your mind. And uh, another word that I like in the Greek uh, is for confession. The word for confession, when we confess our sins to God, the Greek word is homologia, which literally means same word. And when you confess to God, you're saying the same word as God says about sin. You're in agreement with God. So you become, you have the same mind as God, which is a really a, a neat thing. But a few messages back, I spoke about repentance prior to salvation. And there's a scripture that I want to, I want to cover that. Second Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, it says this. Paul says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So Paul had to hit him where it hurt a little bit. He had to tell them some things about themselves that were tough to hear. But they had a godly sorrow, and that sorrow produced repentance. They, they changed their mind about the way they were behaving. And that repentance led to salvation. It opened the door to salvation because they're starting to now come in line to what God says about sin. But a few services back, I, did a, um, I spoke about repentance prior to salvation. And someone came up to me and made a good point, Sam sitting right there, 
And he said, you don't want people to think that you have to be perfect before coming to God. And that was a good point. So let me make that clear. There's a big distinction between being repenting and being perfect, saying, I have to clean up everything. I've got to quit cursing. I've got to quit drugging and drinking and doing this and doing that before I come to God. That's not true. God accepts us as we are, and he works with us. So we agree with God about sin. We admit that we can't do it on our own. And then we ask him to help us to grow in Christ. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So God, we don't do it ourselves. If we could do it ourselves, we wouldn't need God. Every time we try to do it ourselves, we end up falling back. It's only by the grace of God that we can change and become different people spiritually. But another thing we have to not get caught up in is people want to add Jesus to their little idols, their little idol collections. They want to retain themselves and everything about themselves, even the bad things, and they want to add Jesus to that. I'm okay, you're okay, don't try to change me, but I'm going to take Jesus here and put him on the shelf. Well, the interesting thing about that is a friend of mine's father, my friend is he's a good Christian, and his father is a polytheist. He believes in many gods. And his father actually has a, a shelf where he has little idols that he worships. And he called his son and he said, I won't say his name, but he said, look, I put Jesus on the shelf too with my other little gods. And his son got upset. He goes, Jesus doesn't want to be up there with the rest of them. <laughs> you know? He goes, take Jesus off that shelf. He doesn't want to be there. You know? <laughs> but what he was trying to show them was that his father was that it's either Jesus or nothing. Jesus will not be with a bunch of little idols. You know, it's, it's, it's just totally unique about, about who Jesus is. So John the Baptist here primes the people. He softens their heart to prepare for God's message of salvation. Verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill brought low. And the crooked places shall be made straight. And the rough ways made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So Luke here is referencing the prophet Isaiah. Uh, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, verses 3 through, 5, 3 through 5, spoke of the prophet John several hundred years prior to John even being born. And the first thing I want to uh, talk about is John was crying in the wilderness. Now, John wasn't sitting on a stump somewhere with his hanky and boohooing into the hanky. That's not what it means. Uh, the word in the Greek for crying is boao, which means the lowing of an ox or uh, a shout with great feeling. John spoke with authority. He told the people what they needed to hear. He got up there and he was not a respecter of men. He wasn't impressed by anybody. Money couldn't do anything for him. Notoriety couldn't do anything for him. He just was trained by God. He was alone in the wilderness with the Holy Spirit. He was strengthened. And when he came out, he came out booming with a vengeance. Just do it. Clean up, you know, do what you got to do. You know, repent. The, the kingdom of heaven is near. So uh, he speaks about the... Actually, going back to Isaiah, speaks about the crooked places being straight, the valleys filled, the mountains leveled, and the rough ways being smooth. Now, these are monumental tasks. Tasks, if you think about all the mountains and the valleys, and you know, if, if you had to do that li literally, it just would be like an impossible thing. But the point was that God's plan of salvation was coming like a steamroller, and it can't be stopped, and it, it just was going to come, and nothing was going to be an obstacle to God's plan of salvation. But it also took, it was a true monumental task for the hearts of the people to be changed. And, you know, if you, if you look at, even look at ourselves sometimes, look at some of us prior to coming to faith in Christ. Our hearts were hard. My heart was hard. God really had mercy on me because uh, I just remember so many strong men and women of God talking to me about the Lord Jesus. And I was like, yeah, that's, I was attracted to it. But my self-directed lifestyle, which is, I had so many excuses. I'm the excuse king. Ask my wife. I just have a lot of excuses, and I just finally, I said to myself, no, this is right. i got to follow it. I can't keep running from God. But to get our hearts to be changed is, is, can be a real monumental task. I think of excuses that I've heard people use. Um, I've heard people say to me, well, you know, I have finals in college. I've got to finish college first, and then I'll get right with the Lord. Look, I went to college for four years, and I had plenty of time to do the wrong things. <laughs> so college is not an excuse not to follow God. I've heard people say, uh, good, a good guy that I know, he's a business owner in South Brunswick, real generous man, real great guy. And he said, you know, Joe, I'm just so busy. 
I, I have to retire first. You know, I can't do the God thing. I've got to retire first. How many people don't make it to retirement? Somebody should do a study on that. Come back to me with that. But there's no guarantees that we're going to have another breath tomorrow morning or another one. Somebody, different trade schools. Somebody said to me, I've got to go through beauty school. Well, my response to that would be between learning about nail fungus and dandruff, you could read a few verses and pray a little bit. You know, it's, it's not such a hard thing to do. But think about what are some of your obstacles? You know, what, if any of you have not really put your trust in Jesus Christ, what are some of your obstacles that you put out as chaff? I think about the Jets when they're, when they're in the dogfights in the air and, you know, two opposing countries are fighting and, and they, they go after the Jets. And the Jets, not to get caught, to get, a, to get a missile by the other jet behind him, he banks and then he sends out what's called chaff. And it's like a hot magnesium. It's like a, and it comes out of the jet. And, and the missile goes away from the jet and hits the chaff. But we do that. We throw out chaff. When God's hot on our trail, we look for ways to get, you know, ways to get out of it. People are talking to us. It makes sense. Oh, I'm not ready for this. I've got to throw up an excuse. You know? But there's, people have obstacles. And if you haven't given your heart to Jesus Christ... If you really think about your excuses, they're not good excuses. There's no good excuse not to have a relationship with the one who created you, with the one who died for your sins, with the one who loves you. There's no good excuse for that. And even those of us who are Christians who, you know God is calling you to do something. You know he's trying to bump you up to the next level or to make a deeper commitment. And you know, you got those... Uh, you got that shaft that you're sending out, and you got all these excuses for why you can't. Hey, this is a good plug for me because I need servants in the church. I'm just kidding. I don't care where you serve, just serve. Uh, verse 7, he says this. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Matthew's gospel is more specific. Matthew also covers this. And he says that John, who he says brood of vipers to, were the religious leaders. Imagine that. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. That, that's pretty harsh, because if you really think about religious leaders today, I mean, there are some religious leaders today, it doesn't matter what religion you're talking about. They are entrenched. They are, they, like Jesus said, you know, they, they love the greetings. They have fancy vestments. People respect them because of all the tradition and the glitter that surrounds them. And um, these guys, they're, they're not movable. I mean, they're just superstars. I want to read you something. Um, there's a big debate going on between evolution and intelligent design. And the media is, is just humiliating, trying to destroy and make us look like fools that believe in intelligent des- design. Imagine a god who made the cells in your hand that, that we still can't figure out how they work by themselves. A god who made the brain and the eyes and... And the universe, the way the, the planets whiz around in an elliptical pattern, not in a circle like you see in those textbooks. They actually don't, they don't go around the sun in a perfect manner. It's an ellipse. It's a, like an elongated path. And they're all going at different speeds in different directions. It's amazing we don't crash into another planet. But God sets everything up perfectly. You know, the, uh, the force, the, uh, the electromagnetic field and all, you know, the distance from the sun, all this stuff is amazing. But, you know, it probably happened by accident. You know, all these perfect things happen by accident, you know. But it's, it's a ridiculous thing to think that an intelligent designer created all these things, right? That's what the media is hitting us with, trying to make us look like fools. Well, let me read this article to you. I'm, not gonna, I'm only going to read pieces of it. You tell me if you think an atheist wrote it or this or a scientist. I'm going to read it to you. You tell me who you think wrote this article. And don't, don't cheat, try to look at the title here. It says this, It is clear that evolution is an intrinsic and proper characteristic of the universe. Neither the universe as a whole nor any of its ingredients can be understood except in terms of evolution. It says, um, uh, it says the religious believer is tempted by science to make God explanations. We bring God in to try to explain things that we cannot otherwise explain. We sort of latch on to God, especially if we do not feel that we have a good and reasonable scientific explanation. He is brought in as the great God of the gaps. He said, it is unfortunate that especially here in America, creationism has come to mean some fundamentalistic, literal, scientific interpretation of Genesis. Uh, Judaic Christian faith is radically creationist, but in a totally different sense. He says, um, religious believers who respect the results of modern science must move away from the notion of a God who made the universe as a watch that ticks along regularly. And then two more short portions here. He says, I claim that intelligent design diminishes God, makes her or him 
a designer rather than a lover. Okay? Who do you think wrote it? What type of person do you think wrote it? Oh, an author. That's a good one. Uh, <laughs> basically, the guy's name is George Coyne. He's a Jesuit and a director of the Vatican Observatory. He's actually a Vatican scientist. In the name of supposed Christian faith, this guy is writing this trash. Can you believe that? People, this is what we're up against. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter if five billion people on the planet believe something and you're the only one who believes something else. It's not about numbers. It's about what is the truth. And the world and secularism is trying to force us to believe evolution and that we're foolish and pinheaded to believe that a, a, a designer could have designed the universe. So religious leaders, I think if John the Baptist was here today, he'd have a lot to say about certain religious leaders. I have no doubt in my mind. Okay. Now, I've been pretty direct before, but I actually haven't yet had the occasion to call anybody a brood of vipers. So, again, people know me as direct, but I, I haven't had the need to do that yet. But sometimes that stuff needs to be said. Sometimes we may offend people. Proverbs 27.6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Now, really what that means is your true friends may be the ones that come to your face and tell you what you don't want to hear about yourself. The ones who just flatter you, if you read uh, Proverbs, flattery is, is commensurate to, to lies and evil. Flattery is not a good thing. So, But if you've been a Christian a very long time and you've never offended anybody, you're probably not doing your job. What do you think of that? <laughs> um, what, Jesus, what John was saying was offensive. The gospel was offensive. And Jesus offended people. People have a very um, skewed, a very a real misconception of who Jesus was. I'm going to read a few portions of Matthew 23. It's a, a long chapter, but I'm only going to read some of it. Now remember, Jesus here is speaking to the entrenched religious leaders at the time that people looked to for their spirituality. Jesus says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. I'll just skip down. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Those you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. For even so you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then he goes on. Remember, Jesus is talking about the religious leaders at the time. It's pretty heavy stuff. Um, and in John 2.15, I'll just tell you a little bit about what Jesus did. He was disgusted by the, uh, the hypocrisy and the uh, corruption that was going on in the religious system, especially the temple at the time. And it says that Jesus did this. It says, when he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Could you imagine when Jesus was sitting there probably and he's got a bunch of cords and he's, you know, it says he's, he made a whip of cords. What were the disciples thinking while he was doing that? They probably thought he was maybe weaving a basket and they were going to talk about some spiritual truth about how we're all weaved together. And then he gets up and starts cracking the whip and turning tables over. Whoa. Now, Jesus didn't sin, right? That was righteous anger, although Christians erroneously use that a lot. If we have an argument with another Christian, we say, well, that was righteous anger. We can't claim what Jesus claimed. And Proverbs 27:17 it says that um, as iron sharpens iron, so another man, a man sharpens the countenance of his friends. And a friend of mine who's now a pastor said to me, when iron sharpens iron, sometimes spark flies, sparks fly. So self-evaluation 
It's very important. It's, it's happened to me. You know, I, I, uh, even as a new Christian, I thought that, well, I'm going to become a Christian and things are going to be easy and I could, you know, I love me. I'm just going to be me and there's no problem. I'm okay. You're okay. And, uh, you know, I had a few good men in my life, older men in the Lord, who had, had to rebuke me at times and still get rebuked. Not quite as much, but, uh, you know, I, I had to hear it. People need to hear it. There was a guy uh, that I'm thinking about who had trouble with his home, trouble with his family, trouble with addictions. Uh, there was a guy who, you know, I saw him walking one day and I had him put his uh, bicycle in my trunk and I drove him home. And the funny thing is we had a discussion and I said to him, bro, you know, I've dealt with him so many times. I said, you know what? You need Jesus. And I just said, you need Jesus. And this is why. And I just hit him between the eyes with it. But right now, the guy's walking really strong with the Lord. So it was just was a great thing. And again, sometimes that needs to happen. So enough on that subject. Uh, verse 8, he says this. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Fruit of repentance. What is fruit? We've spoken about, spoken about fruit before. Fruit is a manifestation. It's outward evidence of an inward change. It's something visible to others. That what, that's what spiritual fruit is. Um, James says that faith without works is dead. Uh, works is the physical manifestation of saving faith. James wasn't saying that we work our way to salvation. That's false theology. But what he was saying was when we are saved and we truly have that saving faith, we can't help but bear fruit. We can't help but have a changed life. We can't help but just want to just be on fire for the Lord and do things for the Lord and, and help people. And that's fruit that people see. Most of us, if we've been Christians for at least, you know, a few years, uh, looking back, if we go to see relatives or friends or somebody, people say, you know what, you've, you're different, you've changed. People will see that in you. Even if you don't notice the change, they'll notice the change in you. So bear fruits worthy um, of repentance. And he speaks about Abraham here. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And people relied solely on tradition. They felt that if they were sons of Abraham, that they would be fine. You know, the tradition actually started to uh, be elevated over the scripture. And Jesus says that in Matthew 15. He says, with your tradition, you've nullified the word of God. Now, don't get me wrong. Culture is good. A lot of people come to faith in Jesus through different cultures, different languages. All that is good. And tradition is, you know, depending on the tradition, as long as it doesn't go against sacred scripture, can be a good thing, too. However, and a lot of tradition really should be based on the scripture. But what happens is when people elevate tradition over the word of God and it's against the word of God and it's elevated, that's where Jesus said tradition actually can kill God's word. It can destroy it. So he, he, he talked um, very vehemently against that tradition. In verse 9, he says, And even now the, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a picture of judgment. It's closer than you think, he was basically saying to them. If you're cutting down some vegetation and you have uh, an axe and it's laid at the root, it only takes but a few swings before that, that tree falls, right? So when John was saying the axe is laid at the root, he's like, there's no time, people. You got, this, this is something you need to do. You need to repent. The Messiah is coming. There's no time for, for uh, not making up your mind. This is what you got to do. And fire is a picture of everlasting fire. Hell is real. If you look in the commentary and you look up hell... Uh, judgment, everlasting fire, and you look up heaven and, and, and the like, you'll find that there's more references to the former. Why is there so much more references to hell and judgment and, and the fire of, of hell and all that than, than heaven? Because it's a real place and Jesus didn't want us to go there. And for those of you here that may be new and maybe a little concerned that I'm talking about hell so much, nobody has to go there. Nobody in this room has to go there. All the people on the planet Earth, nobody has to go there. There's plenty of room in heaven that God will invite us all in, but we can't be rebellious. We have to come through Jesus Christ. Uh, John 14:6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And it's not a hard thing. It's really not a hard thing. So, uh, moving on, verses 10 through 14, he says this. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you, 
Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. So John gives them their instructions. They're, they want to know, well, what should we do? Verse 11, generosity. Verse 13, honesty and integrity. Verse 14, humility and thankfulness. Um, and he, you, know, he, you can already start to see the change. These people want to know what they have to do to be right with God. And John says, just do it. You often hear the people say, but I don't feel it. Um, I, I see people who uh, maybe is a marriage situation or, um, you know, they'll come and they'll say, but I just, I just don't feel it. I don't feel the love anymore for my spouse. I don't feel it. And what you, what you try to get them to do is, well, act as if God would want you to act. You know, be loving to that spouse. Jesus said, where you put your treasures, your heart will follow. Matthew 6, 21. You know, John said, start doing it. Start heading in this direction. and It'll be a good thing. Same thing. Well, I don't feel it. Even coming to the Lord. Uh, when I came up to receive the Lord uh, nine and a half, ten years ago, I can't tell you I felt tingling. What I felt was because when I went up, it was in front of about 800 people. My knees were knocking, but I didn't feel tingling or see fireworks or anything like that. But what it was was I gave my heart to the Lord. I repented of my sins. And over time, the Lord and I built a relationship. All Christians in the beginning question. It's so kind of neat to see Christians say, well, I don't know if I'm really saved. I don't feel saved. And in the beginning, you have so many questions about what it means to be saved. But what it is, is it's a long journey with your creator. You start off by saying to God, you know what, you're right about my sin. I want to turn from my sin. You want to, you know, receive the Lord Jesus as, as your savior. And you start praying and you start reading a little bit. And as time goes on, you actually start to build a relationship with your creator. I can tell you right now that I know that I'm saved. It, it's been a, a, the Lord and I have been through a, a pretty interesting road. A lot of ups and downs. Um, usually the downs were on my part. But, um, you know, I know that I'm saved. I just know. So, and the Bible says that you can know that you're saved. It's not something that is presumptuous. Verse 15, it says, Now, all, as the people were in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Prior to John, you see, men rose up claiming to be the Messiah and came to nothing. If you read in Acts chapter 5, the great religious leader, uh, the Pharisee Gamaliel, spoke about uh, different men that had rose up who, who claimed that they were Messiah. And it turned out that they weren't, of course. But John was not about to elevate himself um, above God. He was a true man of God. It, it probably could have been tempting. People said, oh, are you the Christ? They probably all gathered around him and, and were you know, giving him a lot of attention. You know, is, is it you? Are you the one? You know, you, you kind of kind of wild looking and we've never seen you before and you, you kind of speak with authority, could be you. But he, he would not take that glory from God. Um, attention changes people. Again, it didn't change John. A lot of times attention changes people for the worst. Let's look at some examples. Look at former appearance. Uh, I saw the show maybe once or twice and I don't watch a lot of TV, but a while back I saw the show. Anybody ever see that show, The Swan? Okay. Basically, it's a show that somebody, you know, you, I guess you put your name in a hat or you write in, and if you have like a physical defect or what you think is a physical defect, what you do is you go and all these doctors for free, they'll, they'll whiten your teeth, they'll give you plastic surgery on your body, they'll do liposuction, they'll fix your nose. I mean, these people come in to the show and, you know, they get all these operations done and they're, they're sore as heck for a few weeks. And then when the soreness goes away, they look at themselves, and they look totally different. That's why it's called the swan. You know, so uh, what you see, too, is you see a lot of humble people come in. They feel insecure about themselves. They won't look in the mirror. They wear their hair to cover their face. And then when they get all the plastic surgery and the hair is light and all these things done and they wake up and they look in the mirror, their attitude changes. They're not humble anymore. They, they, they come off the show like, really, oh, look at me. Like the, their attitude. Yeah, their attitude has to go with their appearance now. Or the scrawny kid who gets, uh, the guy who gets sand kicked in his face and then he starts working out and eating and taking steroids and he gets real big and he has to show everybody that he's not a wimp anymore. You know, he was a humble guy and his attitude changes and now he's, he's the big man, he's the bully, right? And, and this is what you see. Attention changes people, even in the form of wealth. I think about the lottery. Proverbs 20, 21 says that 
an inheritance gained, an inheritance gained hastily will not be blessed at the end. Uh, my uncle, he thinks that the, the, the lottery is his savior. He's been playing the lottery probably for decades now. And he's like, if I could just win the lottery. He always says that. Like, he thinks that's going to make him happy. He spent decades of his life wanting to, wanting to win the lottery. But did you ever follow the, and you don't see it very much on, on the news, did you ever follow the lives of people who have played the lottery and won, like, millions of dollars? For the most part, the majority of these people's lives are ruined. When they get all that money, it changes them. They don't know what to do with it. And they, oh, they get all these friends all of a sudden that aren't really their friends. And it, it makes their lives miserable. And another thing in, uh, about attention is, um, let's turn to ministry now. You know, let's, let's put our focus on ministry. Ravi Zacharias, I listened to him, uh, he did a sermon on the effect that the TV camera has on the preacher, on the man of God, right? And he actually, um, you know, you look at a lot of these televangelists and, you know, one's fallen into prostitution. Remember, preachers, you know, God's word. One falls with a prostitute, one embezzles money, one does this, one does that. All these guys are falling left and right. But he said that the camera has a big effect. They, they see themselves on TV. They go to restaurants and they get the best seats. And they, all of a sudden, it changes them. It elevates them to a different position. Um, he actually, Zacharias, follows the rise and fall of Jim Baker. Um, and on the other hand, the uh, attention in the form of the camera has ability to put intense pressure on a man, a man of God, to where normally he would talk about fire and brimstone. I can tell you right now there's a hell and it exists. And nobody has to go there. But if you rebel against God and his, his chosen Messiah, and you don't believe in, in the blood sacrifice that Jesus had for us, the only thing that awaits you is hell. Now, if there was a TV camera on me, I might try to say that in a different way. You know, I don't know. I don't know what would happen to me. But I, I know what the effect is on these men. Um, I, I know there's some people who have gone on the Larry King show. And uh, Larry King asked the same question. Any preacher who comes on the Larry King show, he asks, well, what about if you don't believe in Jesus Christ? Will you go to hell? He always puts it to them. And a lot of them get nervous. Now, they know he's going to ask them that question, and they don't know how to answer it. Now, I'm not saying anything bad about these people, because I'm not really looking for a bunch of hate email when I get out of here. But let me just share with you an interview on June 20th that Larry King had with a very popular preacher. His name is Joel Osteen, uh, pastor of 30,000 in Texas. Larry King asked him about hell, and Osteen said, you know, I'm very careful about saying who would and who wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. King asked him, if you believe you have to believe in Christ, then they're wrong, aren't they? He doesn't let you off the hook, Larry King. So Osteen says, well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches, and from the Christian faith, this is what I believe, but I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God, and I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I know for me and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. There's an awful lot of I don't knows in there. Um, you know, Paul said in Acts 20, 27, I did not shun to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And if we need a savior, what do we need to be saved from? Hell, sin, death, everlasting fire. That's part of the equation. It's like if you got to tell people the truth. And again, I'm not saying anything bad about this guy because I saw him actually, and he seems to be a nice guy. He dresses nice. He's well-spoken. Probably if I met him, I'd like him. 30,000 people like him. They come to his church. But what I'm saying is that the camera and attention can change people. And John didn't succumb to that. But, you know, if you went to a surgeon, and I went to a surgeon, and I had this tumor growing out of my, out of my abdomen, and it, it, was, it was obvious and it was pressing against my other organs, and it was um, getting bigger and bigger, and it was crowding them out. And I went to the surgeon, and he would say, oh, my goodness. He, the, the normal surgeon would say, we've got to operate tomorrow. We've got to get you on that table, right? But what about the surgeon who says, well, it's all relative. You know, it looks kind of big. Maybe you could draw a smiley face on it and put hair on it, pretend it's a child. I don't know, you know, but don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. That guy's not doing you any good, and he should be fired. So why can't we put the same application in the things of God? You know, I'm just starting out so I could say all these things. Now, I hope that I don't... <laughs> well, if five years down the road we, we double the size and, you know, I start to think that I'm really slick and I start becoming really polished and I start saying a lot of I don't, I don't knows, will somebody grab me and shake me and slap me and let me listen to this CD? Thank you. He's, Charles is going to do it for me. But... <laughs> But the point is that, um, you know, we, 
we're up against intense pressure, people, because the true gospel is being watered down. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I think you, there's no I don't knows about that. I mean, that's very cut and dried, what Jesus said. Now, again, people say, well, you Christians are exclusive. No, we're not. Because everybody right now, within the sound of my voice, right now on the, on the planet Earth, if they were to repent and come to Jesus, no matter what language they speak, no matter what cult, culture they're from, um, no matter what their occupation or, or their status, everybody can be saved. There's enough room in heaven. But people are just rebellious. Okay. So, you know, John says that, look, um, that the Messiah, I can't even stoop down to untie his sandal. I can't do it. Now, what John said about the untying of the sandal was actually a picture of humility. Back then, and you have to understand the culture, back then a slave would untie the sandals of the master of the house and the guests. He would stoop down, untie them, take off the shoe, and wash the feet. That was the slave's job. John is saying, I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. That's a picture of true humility. So when you really understand the culture, you understand what John is saying there. But Jesus had a different baptism. Remember, John's baptism, John's baptism was preparatory for repentance. It was a, a preparation to receive Christ's message. Jesus' baptism was totally different. It was a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, as we said before, what you believe about Jesus and the stand that you take about Jesus determines your eternal security. Jesus was a conduit to either receive the Holy Spirit, okay, only through coming through, coming through Christ, or to receive fire and eternal judgment. Now, some people have a different view of what fire means, but the baptism of fire is a, is a total immersion. And we know that the lake of fire, it's a total immersion in fire. Well, some people say, well, actually, the baptism of fire could have meant uh, on, on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. But that's not, I, I looked in the Greek, and it, it's, not a, it's not an immersion. The disciples were there, and tongues of fire came down, and they actually... Um, and as we go into Acts, we'll go into this. The tongues of fire hovered over them pretty much. It rested on them. But they weren't baptized. They weren't immersed in that fire. So I believe it's either two choices in life. You can get the Holy Spirit, door number one, which is great. Or you can get door number two, which is not so great, the eternal lake of fire. The choice is yours. So everybody has a choice there. Uh, verse 17, he says, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So understand what the winnowing fan is and the threshing floor. This was a way traditionally and in some some farm. Well, actually, probably not in this country. Everybody has machines now, but um, it was a way to take the wheat to harvest it and separate the usable part of the wheat from the chaff, the unusable part. And what they would do is they would take the wheat into an area, usually a higher edge of elevation, a semi-enclosure, and they would thresh the, the wheat on the threshing floor. They would use physical force to break the, what's inside, the usable part of the wheat, from the kernel. Um, and what they would do it was through uh, maybe a stick, uh, animal hooves, or cartwheels. Not these type. Cartwheels. Uh, and the winnowing fan, they would, he would stick it in the, the, the busted up wheat, he would take the, which was really like a pitchfork. They would put it in the wheat and they would throw it up in the air. And the chaff was lighter and when the wind blew through, it would blow away the chaff. The good stuff came down and it was put in the barn. So that's what Jesus is talking about. But this is a picture of, again, separating the wheat from the chaff, separating the sheep from the goats, separating the true believers from the non-believers. Um, and unquenchable fire again. I'm not obsessed with hell. We just keep talking about passages that go back to hell. Um, unquenchable fire is a picture of the unusable part. You know, the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, it's burned with unquenchable fire. Unquenchable means you can't put it out. It just goes and it goes and it goes and it goes. So, uh, verse 18 through 20, and wrapping up here, he says, And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. So uh, we spoke before about being direct. If there was anybody in the scripture who was really direct, you know, it was John the Baptist. He didn't mince words. But And I really believe that God separated him for a while because... Again, this is just my speculation. Now that I read this, actually, it just came to me that I think that God let him do his ministry out in the wilderness and taught him one-on-one -on -one so that he would not be affected by, by man. He would not be affected by money, by, by notoriety, by relationships. 
he would just come out of that wilderness and he was loaded for bear. God gave him his marching orders and he gave it to the people because that's what they needed to hear. And he couldn't be turned. He couldn't be bought, so to speak. Right. So John was very direct. And um, Herod Antipas was an evil man. And one of the evils that he did was he took his brother Philip's wife for himself and was having a relationship with her. Now, you would say, well, why would John why wouldn't John just kind of be quiet and he, he wouldn't end up in prison? Well, remember, Herod was was supposedly the king of the Jews. He was the, um, the temporal, the put-in king for the Jewish people, and uh, he was a self-proclaimed Jewish leader, spiritual leader. And John had to expose that, because he wasn't. He was the false messiah. So John had to expose that. And for John speaking up, uh, speaking the truth, he got put in prison, and eventually he lost his life. So you've got to count the cost. John had to count the cost of um, you know, speaking about God and telling the truth about God. And we have to count the cost, too, because when we choose to follow God, if we truly choose to follow God, not the, the shallowness. You know, there's so much shallowness in our society. People are like, hey, how you doing? And then when you leave, they're like, jerk. Never like that person anyway. People, you know, people are just, they're just shallow. Everybody will be nice to your face. And I, I hate to say it, but, you know, the, um, the American church, there's a lot of shallowness in the church. There's a lot of relativism, you know. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as we all hold hands and sing kumbaya and we're all fine. That's not true. You know, the gospel is the gospel. Paul said in Galatians 1, 8, 9, he says, If I or an angel from heaven or anyone else preach another gospel than the gospel that you have heard, let him be anathema. And he says it twice. It's very rare that some a verse is repeated twice in the scripture. It usually means you should pay attention in case you didn't hear it the first time. And what Paul was saying, let him be accursed, whether it's even an angel or anybody who preaches a gospel other than what you have heard. So in closing, um, you know, we approaching the new year and, you know, there's a lot of resolutions and some of us are going to put on weight. Some of us are going to lose weight. Some of us are going to stop smoking for a few months and then in March we'll be smoking again. Uh, But these things have no eternal weight. The Bible says that even exercise, bodily exercise profits a little but godliness, godly exercise, is profitable for all things. We have the opportunity next year to really make a difference for Jesus Christ. It's only a few, de- few days away. As a matter of fact, you have the opportunity right now when you leave this place to make a difference for Jesus Christ. But I just want to ask us that we all would pray to see where we could make changes in our lives. And we can self-evaluate ourselves. We can always improve. We can always do a better job. We can always say, you know, I... You know, I just, I've been just so lazy about even discipling people, having an effect on people. So we can all look at ourselves and evaluate ourselves and see where we can change. Um, John's message was harsh, but the truth is we're insignificant to the kingdom of God if we're not bearing fruit. So let us pray that God uses a mighty way in 2006, and let us also pray that um, we wouldn't be resistant to the changes that he wants to make in us. Because he took his brother Philip's wife for himself. And he's having a relationship with her. Now, you would say, well, why would John, why wouldn't John just kind of be quiet?